Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us uh, for the show today. A long list of uh, topics that we uh, are going to try to get to. Um, We always run out of time for everything, but we'll do our best because there's lots of news uh, to talk about today. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us as she is on Tuesdays. Boy, Tamar, I've got to say, your byline has been on some really uh, good stories in the last few days. You you did a story that we'll talk about um, today about about Fawny Willis and the potential for a special grand jury in Trump. And then you also did a really good piece talking to people with long term COVID, um, which unfortunately we're probably never going to get to today. But you've been busy. Yeah, I certainly have. And talk about an incentive uh, to to stay safe out there and to get my booster shot and. Uh, make good decisions with masks and social distancing, because talk about something after interviewing all these people about some of the ailments that they're facing months and even a year plus after getting COVID. And it's terrifying enough to um, never want to get. Yeah, well, um, as I said, you've been busy and we've benefited from your reporting. So thank you for all of that. Um, We're joined today by Senator Kim Jackson, a Democratic state senator from Gwinnett County, Stone Mountain, actually, I guess DeKalb County, uh, more than uh, Gwinnett, right, Kim? That's right. Mostly mostly DeKalb, but I am proud to have some Gwinnettians in my district, too. (laughs) Um, We've uh, had Kim on any number of times, and many of you know she's also an Episcopal priest who ministers to the homeless in Atlanta. Thank you for being here. Uh, uh, Leo Smith is back with us, Republican uh, strategist, uh, president, CEO, whatever title he gives himself on a given day of Engaged Futures, um, an organization that does government relations work, but also uh, does some work in trying to bring people of disparate interest together. Hi, Leo. Hi, hi Bill. Uh, you know, I, I guess the one um, one thing I can hold on to is being a human. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. such that's so much who you are, Leo, to say something mm-hmm. like that. Good for you. We're also joined by Emeritus Professor of Political mm-hmm. Science at Emory University, Alan Abramowitz. Alan, I'm especially glad you're with us today because your name came up on the show yesterday when we were talking about the incredibly hostile backlash to the 13 Republicans who voted for uh, the uh, infrastructure bill. And uh, Andrew Gillespie, your colleague, actually said, you know, it was Alan Abramowitz who really uh, taught us all about negative partisanship. I mean, it's an issue that you brought to our attention in books, and um, it it was an important uh, part of the political dialogue. So thanks for being here today. Yeah, sure. Glad glad to be with you. Lots to talk about. Absolutely. So let's get right to it. Tomorrow, let's do, you know, we got to go back to Brunswick uh, to start the show today. Kevin Goff, uh, the attorney uh, representing William Roddy Bryan, has once again, uh, yesterday, um, 
told the judge that he doesn't want yet another black pastor to be in the courtroom. Jesse Jackson came to the trial, sat with uh, Ahmaud Arbery's mother. We know that Goff, of course, last week really uh, created a, a, a conflagration of anger when he said, we don't want any more black pastors in the courtroom after Al Sharpton had been there. So um, as we start to talk about what this means, this newest uh, front that he has launched, let's listen to what he said first, and then we'll come back and then play what uh, Judge Wamsley had to say in return. The issue that Ray brought up previously is how many pastors does the Arbery family have? Um, we had the Reverend Al Sharpton here earlier uh, last week, and I'm not keeping track, and I think the court has indicated the court doesn't intend to ask anyone to keep track of who was in the gallery. Um, but I don't know who Mr. Jackson, Reverend Jackson, is pastoring here. We are concerned about whether it's conscious or unconscious, the impact of their presence with respect to the jury and with respect to the proceedings in this case. And I guess the next question is, which pastor is next? Is Raphael Warnock going to make be the next person appearing this afternoon? We don't know. So tomorrow, not only injecting race, but politics as well into this conversation. And I want to add one more thing that uh, Goff said, which again raises questions about his insensitivity, I think, to racial issues. He also said... Um, that the courtroom, he said, and this is a quote, with all due respect, Your Honor, the seats in the public gallery of a courtroom are not like courtside seats at a Lakers game. He could have chosen a lot of sports. He happened to choose one that is clearly uh, famously loved by many African Americans. Tamara, your, your thoughts on this before we hear Wamsley's reaction. And then everybody jump in on this. Yeah, and, and Wamsley's reaction is is so good, um, you know, to, to see. But I mean, talk about a case that is already so charged, emotions running so high. Um, you know, you have groups of people who feel such pain by what happened to Ahmed Arbery outside the, the courthouse every day. Um, and already tensions are running so high in this small community of, of Brunswick. So I'm not exactly sure uh, what Kevin Gaw's strategy is here. Clearly he got reamed pretty, uh, pretty hard in the press uh, and you know, national headlines after what he said last week about black pastors. So I'm not sure exactly what he thinks he's getting by by going after uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, but I, it certainly Jack- isn't going Ooh. to help his case. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I? I? No, no, I apologize. Kim Jackson, jump in, please. Yeah, I, I, I heard someone on your show yesterday say something similar to this, that um, he's essentially making the case for the prosecution I mean, it is literally the same ideology that the presence of a black man in a room is somehow intimidating is what drove um, and resulted in the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey, right? It was the same notion. You've got a black, you know, guy who's running down the street and therefore his very presence um, must be intimidating and he must be removed from our neighborhood. That's what drove the McMichaels. And we're hearing that exact same argument from their defense attorneys to say, you know, this black preacher man, and it's always black preacher men, right? It's not black women who are pastors, it's black preacher men. Um, their, their very presence is persuading and intimidating um, the jury. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Leo, we should point out that, of course, he's made these remarks when the jury was not in 
the courtroom. And what he would argue is that at one point uh, during testimony yesterday, Ahmaud Arbery's mother began weeping, understandably, given what she was watching in the videos of her son being killed. And Jesse Jackson leaned over and comforted her. Goff insists that the jury sees that and sees it as a way to show sympathy. It'll make them feel sympathetic and maybe uh, tilt how they decide this case. Leo? You know, it's just very interesting and disappointing to me that we have a, a, a defense attorney who basically believes in the dehumanization of people, and especially in this case of African-Americans, that to have someone acting in comfort, to have someone expressing their freedom to enter a courtroom and observe a case, uh, it, they can't transcend the caricature of being these dangerous, intimidating figures. It makes me believe that this is a, uh, sort of an, an attempt to sort of manage expectations that if my uh, defendants, my clients are found guilty, then it's all because of racial intimidation. He's creating the excuse before he loses, it seems. Um, Ellen, I want you to jump in and then we'll play Judge Wamsley. Well, I, I wonder along those lines whether um, the defense attorney thinks that this is somehow going to be the basis of an appeal uh, if he loses the case. But I, I would say this, that although the jury, of course, was not present for those comments, that the defense lawyer could not possibly have come up with anything intended to inflame the, the, the uh, feelings of those in the community, uh, those outside the courtroom, and, 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 and across the state and the nation, uh, more than, than what he's said. Um, you know, his last co- his comments that he's made about, about black pastors. And this is in the aftermath of striking almost every uh, potential black juror fr- from the jury, which, which I think is also something that we, we should keep in mind, that we have a jury here uh, in, uh, you know, in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, with a large African-American community with, with one black juror out of 12. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's listen. Judge Wamsley has made it clear on a couple of occasions. He doesn't have a whole lot of patience uh, for uh, what Goff has been saying. Goff did ask for a uh, mistrial, and uh, uh, Wamsley said absolutely not. Uh, but here's how he responded to uh, Goff in general. So then we start getting into what we have now with individual members uh, or individuals coming into the courtroom. I will say that is directly in response, Mr. Goff, to statements you made, which I find reprehensible. Uh, The Colonel Sanders statement you made last week, I would suggest maybe something that has influenced what is going on here. Um, In response to that, and to his credit, Mr. Sheffield, made some comments, but did say, you know, come one, come all. Um, And so now the court is faced with balancing a lot of things going on outside this courtroom and doing it in a way that respects members of the public's right to be in the courtroom, as well as what I'm trying to put out there is a fair trial. So just for clarification, Sheffield is another one of the defense attorneys who condemned very vehemently uh, what Goff had said, it doesn't. He doesn't think it does his case uh, any mm-hmm. uh, good. And um, uh, Kim Jackson, uh, the judge also says you're 
you're asking for it, essentially. <laughs> We're going to have black pastors yeah. lined up out the door to get in and sit in this courtroom because of your comments, Mr. Goff. <laughs> That's right. Al Sharpton is uh, committed to coming back with 100 black pastors uh, this week. So, And I, I know a number of colleagues who are prepared to go down on Thursday. So um, you're intimidated by black pastors. It was just one in the courtroom. Uh, wait till it's packed by, you know, these black pastors and see mm-hmm. see how that feels. I think it's also so, worth noting um, that, I just want to say, I think it's also worth noting that um, pastors are there to provide pastoral care, right? That the the people who are sitting in that jury and uh, who are sitting there witnessing and watching, those family members need pastoral care. I've done this myself. I've sat through a murder trial with a family, and the presence of spiritual advisors is really essential to helping to care for those folks who are having to listen to those testimonies. Um, let me just add one other note here, uh, because I made a comment on the show yesterday that a couple people um, took some issue with. I, I think his name, Larry English is the guy who owns the house that Ahmad Arbery went into, um, had, had the camera set up to monitor activity. And I pointed out that English, when he called 911, described Aubrey as a colored guy uh, with very curly hair. So, Leo... I don't know that Larry English was be making an overtly racist remark. I leave, That's up to you as an African-American to tell mm-hmm. me. But what I do know is it sort of expresses this 19th, like we're back in a time warp talking about black people it, as if it were 1955 or 1960. And at the very least, it struck me as part of an environment that surrounds some of the people involved in this trial. You know, Bill, when uh, Governor Kemp, uh, Georgia governor, uh, spoke about the repeal of the citizen arrest law, he was quoted as saying, today we replace a civil war area law, uh, era law. And the fact is, is that we have too many people in our state, around our country, whose experience with people across race, people of color, black people particularly, um, it's based on history and not on the reality of now, that these people have not evolved from the experience of engaging across difference. That's a big problem, and you can see that this this ignorance is literally killing us. All right. Um, I'd like to move on. Um, and take on another subject. We're obviously going to keep our eye on what's going on down there in the days and weeks ahead. And we're all scratching our heads, I think all of us, um, about what exactly Kevin Goff's strategy is, if there is a strategy to it at all. Um, Tomorrow, let's let's talk about something just overtly political. Let's talk about the fact that Newt Gingrich, who used to be a Georgian, I don't think you would call him a Georgian anymore, but he likes to weigh in on politics here. He wrote the other day that uh, (laughs) Brian Kemp can't beat Stacey Abrams uh, and David Perdue should jump into this race. Uh, Give us your take on Newt Gingrich and that comment. I mean, it it certainly feels like the the start of this kind of Republican civil war um, should Senator Perdue ultimately jump in on this primary race. Um, Newt, of course, is very close with Donald Trump, um, was a key advisor to him in 2016. His wife, Callista, uh, was Trump's ambassador to the Vatican. Um, So to a certain extent, it's not surprising, although it seemed like he was always allied with with, uh, Governor Kemp. And it's going to be interesting to watch now how many Newt 
Gingrich acolytes will now kind of go with him um, and and end up urging David Perdue to go in. Just today in a in the in the morning jolt, um, Randy Evans, uh, another Newt Gingrich ally who who ended up serving as ambassador to Luxembourg, is also urging uh, Perdue to get in. So I think it's going to be the first of many. Alan, it's remarkable. Uh, I mean, I mean to see this. Here we have a, a Senate race coming up in Georgia, which is going to be one of the most hotly contested, one of the most important Senate races in the country that could well determine which party controls the U.S. Senate uh, in, in 2023. And, and, uh, and, and, and we have a governor's race here that is uh, one of the most high-profile governor's races in the country. And we have uh, Donald Trump and his allies trying to intervene in both of these contests and trying to put candidates in place. And in the Senate race, they've already pretty much succeeded uh, in doing that um, and now trying to intervene in the governor's race and, and, and trying to take down an, an incumbent Republican governor, which I, I would predict if they, if they are successful uh, in doing that, I have no idea if David Perdue is going to actually jump into this race. But, but if he does, I mean, certainly that is going to greatly, if anything, increase the chances that, that um, Democrats will win the governorship regardless of who ends up you know, uh, coming out of that that Republican primary as the winner. Okay, so Leo, you're the Republican on the panel. So let me turn to you and kind of ask you two questions. One, does a Newt Gingrich and others like him who believe that Brian Kemp, because of the antipathy Donald Trump feels toward him and the base may feel toward him, is there a point there that perhaps uh, Brian Kemp um, may not be the best guy. Well, no, let me back up from that. I don't know how Brian Kemp's refusal to go along with Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election hurt him in an F, in a general election. The only time they hurt him is if he's got significant opposition in a Republican primary against a David, a pro-Trump ally like a David Perdue, right? Yeah, I mean, one thing that uh, having a primary opponent in this kind of environment will do is, of course, push the Republican governor um, further to the right, which will further isolate either candidate that's Republican uh, into a far right wing sort of Trump sort of uh, uh, loyalty fight. And that's not good for Republicans in a general, and that's not good for democracy, Uh, (laughs) small d democracy, period, is not good. And it's going to create a lot of hostility in an environment that's already hostile. I hope that this is simply Newt Gingrich um, sort of, you know, having an electioneering discussion uh, about, okay, what are the practical matters? He's looking at Virginia. He mentioned Virginia, although I disagree that our environment is like Virginia. Our Republican Party is not likely to do a convention where we choose one candidate and or push one candidate the way that Virginia was able to do. We're going to have a primary race, unlike Virginia, that they had a meeting to choose their their candidate. So I feel like this is Newt in a way sort of looking for more loyalty points to Donald Trump. And and that's very disappointing to me as a Republican who stands the idea that we can be independent. Okay. But Leo, um, as Tamar just pointed out, now Randy Evans has jumped on the bandwagon. Of course, 
it, Randy Evans has been Newt's attorney forever, so we know there's a tight relationship there. <laughs> Nevertheless, here's another prominent Republican speaking out. I mean, there was a point a couple weeks ago, or even a week ago, when the notion that David Perdue might really jump in and create this civil war within the party seemed unlikely. But if there's momentum now building, Leo, you have to wonder whether it, it may be pushing him toward a run. No, I agree. I agree that um, the fact that there was amongst some of the acolytes of Purdue some interviews happening um, in media uh, engagements happening it suggests to me that this is a pretty serious consideration that Purdue is making. And yes, they do have uh, similarity. Uh, Gingrich and, and uh, McKenna Long and Aldridge, now Denton's, uh, and, and Randy Evans were both tied in business with Denton's law firm. Uh, so they do have these, these common political business interests. And, you know, I think that's important to point out, Bill. I want to piggyback off some comments that, that Leo was making earlier in terms of how this could potentially um, really damage Brian Kemp or even David Perdue, should he be the one to make it out of a Republican primary. I think Democrats are going to be sitting back right now with a, a giant bucket of popcorn because now having a bloody primary like this, the potential of that, um, you know, if you're Stacey Abrams, if you're Nikema Williams leading the Democratic Party, you know, these Republicans are going to do their your job for you. Um, Stacey Abrams or whoever's the gubernatorial nominee can sit back, raise money, keep quiet. And instead, Brian Kemp is going to have to spend a ton of money defending himself against an internal primary challenge. Um, you know, uh, David Perdue could be honing a message against him that a Democrat can later um, take up in a general election. They're going to be digging up dirt that Democrats can use later in a general election. And like Leo said, you're going to push both candidates to the right in a way that might make it harder to appeal to, um, to a more general audience later on. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that uh, uh, that the, the danger to Republicans, in ha if there is a, a primary challenge to Kemp, is that um, we're going to see something happen that we're already seeing happen in the primary contest in Ohio, for example, where we have two Republican candidates both trying to outdo each other to demonstrate their their uh, loyalty to Donald Trump in order to appeal to the Republican base. That's what the Republican voter base right now wants to see. And if that happens here, I think you end up with a damaged candidate who has taken positions that are going to be too far to the right, allied himself too closely with Donald Trump, who is a very controversial figure. Uh, and, uh, and that, in turn, is going to hurt Republicans down ballot as well, because we know that we are in a time now where there is tremendous straight ticket voting. The governor's race is the race at the top of the ticket. Uh, and if re Republicans are having a problem there, it's going to hurt Republican candidates. It's going to hurt the Senate candidate. It's going to hurt the congressional candidates. It's going to hurt the state legislative candidates, although the districts may be drawn in such a way that it may not matter. But uh, it is going to have a negative impact down ballot as well. Yeah, I'm actually curious. I'm, I'm curious to see. Uh, so Herschel Walker has, um, you know, continued to, 
not give us much of anything to know what he believes and stands for. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that he hasn't leaned extremely far to the right. Um, he's not running that kind of race against um, Gary Black in the primary. And so I'd be curious to see um, if Brian Kemp can't pull off something similar. He already knows that Trump doesn't support him. Uh, so what might his race look like if he runs um, closer middle for Republican is not really the middle, but what if he runs a little closer um, to the middle and stays more authentic and true to how he's governed, which has not been to the extreme far right? I mean, the reality is they already tried that with David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, and we see where that got them when both of them went to the extreme right. Um, and so I think this might be a time for Brian Kemp's team to circle around and uh, think about a different strategy that, that may not actually pull him to the far right. Um, the question is, Tamar, <laughs> can you win the, a, base, a base primary election if you do that? That's the Are there enough yeah. voters mm -hmm. out there? And I, I highly doubt that. You know, Virginia is one thing. Um, you know, as Leo mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, Glenn Youngkin was able to kind of keep Trump at arm's length, and that was able to help him win back a lot of these suburban voters that over the last decade have been voting for Democrats. You simply cannot do that here in Georgia, where polling suggests that something like 80 percent of Republican voters, um, you know, support Donald Trump. Um, and, and a lot of the, the lies he's told about the 2020 election. So I think it'll be much harder for, for Kemp to do. Alan, one last point about this, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, we've said on the show any number of times that Brian Kemp has avoided becoming Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis, and, and Kim really made that right. point just a minute ago. Um, uh, but, but at the same time, uh, there are certainly aspects of the Trump agenda that he has embraced. Um, so, for instance, uh, the governor's office has just announced another lawsuit against the um, Biden vaccine mandate, this time suing against the mandate that healthcare workers need to be vaccinated. And they say the reason for that, they call healthcare workers heroes in their news release and say, and now those heroes are, uh, are, are facing possible firing if they won't be vaccinated. That he may not be Greg Abbott, but that's a that's right out of the Trump playbook. And it's kind of startling, I think, Alan, that healthcare workers who uh, are, are in a position to deal with people who come to them sick, vulnerable, uh, may not be vi uh, uh, vaccinated. I just wonder about that um, decision. It, it, I, I, it's a ter I, you know, from from a public health standpoint. I think that that would be a terrible decision. And I think if you, you know, talk to public health experts here uh, in Georgia, they would say the same thing, that that if anyone should be required to be vaccinated, it's precisely these, these public health workers. And so by by uh, attacking this vaccine mandate for for health workers, I think you're definitely seeing Kemp trying to make a play uh, to, to the right wing of the party, to the Trump base of the Republican Party, trying to fend off a, a potential challenge. Um, so, and, and it's very much along the lines of what we're seeing happen, you know, with Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. Uh, you're right. I mean, Kemp certainly has not gone as far as, as they have until now. But uh, if he does face a primary challenge, you know, if, if uh, we see David Perdue jump into this race, then, then it will be very interesting to see just how far Kemp uh, is, going, is willing to go in, in, in the upcoming session, for example, in terms of what kinds of, of, of legislation uh, he's going to push, what kinds of executive actions he's going to take uh, 
you know, to try to win back or reinforce the support among among the Trump base. Leo, I'll give you the last word uh, before we have to get to a break. It is consistent with uh, Governor Kemp's leadership to use business calculations for the good of this state. You know, we always talk about this is the number one state in which to do business. So protecting business interests, uh, the ability to have people stay in their jobs, to not be forced to leave their jobs because of mandates, is, is surely in his calculation, not simply um, just medical reasons, but also the totality of the impact on the state, including um, the fact that it's good for people to have work. All right. Leo Smith gets the last word in this segment. We're going to take our first break and be back in just a moment with lots more. Emery's uh, Alan Abramowitz, State Senator Kim Jackson, Leo Smith, Republican strategist, and Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, on the show with me today. Uh, Tamar, the uh, uh, legislature made fairly short work of redrawing lines in both the Senate and the House districts, and um, they're now moving forward this week. In fact, Kim Jackson, you may very well be down at the Capitol getting set, doing the show before going into session today, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So tomorrow, I you know it's we're not we can't drill down to every uh, state house district, even senate district. So let's give it an overview. We've talked on this show before tomorrow about the Princeton gerrymandering project, which in each state uh, has literally had a computer uh, do a million versions of possible maps, and then from those many calculations. Uh, looked at what a fair redistricting would look like in terms of Republican seats in a state House and state Senate and Democratic seats. All right. Um, What the Princeton gerrymandering project said in one of their latest iterations of the maps that that I think is close to the final map in each uh, body, they said that the House map gets a B, a B for partisan fairness, um, an F, though, for competitiveness, um, meaning that they, uh, r- relative to the maps they drew, you know, the million maps, there are many other ways they could have made the maps more competitive between Democrats and Republicans. And they gave them a C for geographic features, by which they mean compact districts, not splitting counties, that sort of thing. Um, so the House got, you know, a decent uh, grade for partisan fairness tomorrow. Yeah, that was that was interesting to see. And I mean, it goes to show all of the different decisions that have to be made um, when you're drawing maps. There's, of course, things like partisanship, which we, we talk about a lot on this show. But there's all sorts of other things to consider, including just, you know, the outline. Yeah. Do you keep counties together? Are you accounting for race? How do you keep like groups of people together? Um, are you drawing funky sized districts? So it was interesting to kind of look at this analysis that pulls together about a million different um, scenarios to, to rank it all. And I, I was impressed when I saw uh, the B grade for the for the uh, House Republican map. Not so generous for the Senate map, on the other hand. Yeah, uh, uh, Kim, your body got an F for partisan fairness, <laughs> an F for uh, uh, competitiveness, and a C for geographic features. So, the f- if, first of all, tell us how your district turned out. Sure. Uh, so, first of all, I think let's be clear that the 
map that my body voted on is not the map that was presented by Democrats. Uh, the map that Democrats uh, in the Senate pre- produced received an A rating uh, mm-hmm. from the Princeton gerrymandering group. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, in terms of my district, uh, it's, uh, you know, it is not competitive. I think the the thing that keeps, gets named uh, often is whether or not we want to have competitive districts, and they've uh, secured the Democratic seat uh, for me. But mm-hmm. what they've also done with my district is that they've packed it with black with black voters. I am the only uh, African-American or only person of color currently in the Senate who represents a majority white district. Um, that is been a great point of pride uh, for me, quite frankly, um, that we are able to to do that. And now my district will be um, about 65% African-American. So they've packed um, my district with African-American voters. So explain to listeners why that matters. In other words, it gives you a better chance to win re-election, presumably, assuming African-Americans find you the best candidate in the district. But it also dilutes the power of African-American voters in districts around you, right? That's 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 exactly right. And so, you know, the question for my fellow Republicans is, you know, why pack my district? It's already clear that the 49% of African Americans who live in my current district were able to choose the legislator of their choice. Um, they had enough power in their vote. So, um, why pack us and therefore dilute other districts um, around it um, and, and make it much more difficult? I think for people who are much further southern south from me to be able to carry their districts because black voters have been packed into my district. Alan, well, I think I think if you, stepping back and trying to look at the big picture here, what's going on yes. in both the House and Senate, it's it, it's certainly clear that the, the House the House map is more fair in terms of partisan representation than the Senate map is. But the big picture in both cases is that we have here uh, political interests, political self-interest colliding with demographic reality. Uh, And what I mean by that is that Republicans who are drawing the maps in the House and Senate are trying, uh, uh, of course, to to preserve their hold on power and trying to ensure they will continue to be the majority party in both chambers. But in doing so, they have to deal with the underlying reality, which is that the state is changing and the population is changing and becoming more diverse. And that is what we've seen reflected in the election results in in recent years. So the the end result is a map in which the uh, there are actually more Democratic leaning districts uh, in in the House and slightly more. I think one more in the Senate, but but uh, several additional Democratic leaning districts. In the House, and you ask, well, why would Republicans draw a map with more Democratic-leaning districts? And the answer is, they really didn't have any choice, um, because you have to have equal population across districts. So, given that that reality, the, the reality of demographic change, which has swung uh, uh, the state to, toward toward the Democrats over the last decade, um, this was the, you know the best they could do. Um, the concern about competitiveness, which exists in both maps, is is very real very important. And the reason it's so important is that when you, when you do, don't have competitive districts, it's not, it's not so much bad for the voters who are, you know, because most Republicans and Democrats would probably prefer to be represented by a representative from their own party. But what, uh, and rather than say, oh, I'd like to be in a competitive district, the, what the problem is, is that it means there's just less overall responsiveness of the composition of the legislature to electoral swings. So you can get a swing in the vote. You know, the electorate overall may swing to the 
toward Republicans or swing toward Democrats in a given election, but the makeup of the legislature of the Senate or House won't change or change very little. And, and the reason is because there are so few districts that are near that dividing line where, where a shift of a few percentage points, because they're only going to be small shifts, can move districts one way or the other. That's, that's going to be uh, – that's not going to happen. Yeah, it locks everybody down. It locks you down. You're in a Republican least, district. Least, you're in a Democratic district. <laughs> right. Go ahead. At least for the next uh, you know, couple of cycles. Now, I will say this also. The best laid plans – uh, often, you know, go awry. And, and that's what we saw in the last decade. So n- n- nobody thought when Republicans drew the lines in 2011 that we would end up in a situation where the 6th and 7th congressional districts swung to the Democrats. Because, but it reflects what's happened, the huge shifts that have taken place in the last 10 years uh, in, in the suburb, some of the suburbs surrounding Atlanta. Uh, Gwinnett County, Cobb County have swung, you know, by huge, huge amounts. Uh, And the same thing could very well happen in the next decade. So we may start off with a map that looks like it puts Republicans in control, and it probably will for the 2022, 2024, maybe 2026 even. By the time we get to 28, I know that's a long way off, but especially for those of us who are of a certain age, but by the time we get to 28 and 30, (laughs) if we can look ahead that far, that may no longer be the case, and the districts will, you know, some of the districts will probably no longer look like what they look like in the initial drawing, you know, in terms of their political composition. Okay, so, Leo, you can check me if I'm wrong. I think the House map gives Democrats the possibility of picking up five, six seats, and Republicans would lose those. Senate, it's one seat that Democrats might pick up. But where the real partisan uh, concerns are going to, you know, come to life, and Kim Jackson's going to have to deal with them in the Senate this week, are as they draw the congressional map. I mean, there are Republicans who are suggesting that we ought to have a split in the delegation, nine to five, pro-Republicans. And if that sort of thing comes to pass, I think you're going to see howls of protest and and, and certainly legal action. Yeah, and I think just like in drawing the state house uh, maps, uh, I think Republicans would do their best to, to create maps for the congressional districts that are legally solid. Um, they don't want to get in a Tendat and bold fight. Um, my greatest concern about this demographics as destiny issue um, as a conservative is that I think that we're losing an opportunity as Republicans to actually have the ability to engage uh, constituents who are African-American in uh, uh, Senator Jackson's district. I think that would be beneficial to us long term because we're going to run out of the ability to mechanize our electioneering. And we're going to have to eventually share ideas with people that create better representation and democracy because of a competition of ideas. I want that competition of ideas in a district. I think conservative ideas can have some wins there. And I think we're losing sight of that. Kim, let me give you a chance to have a last word before we take a break. Yeah, I think it's important to note that um, I think time will tell whether or not the Republicans have actually drawn legal maps. And um, But I also want to note that there's a difference between drawing something that walks that fine line of legality and what's right. Um, and I would argue that what's right is to create fair maps that uh, fairly represent the, dem- the demographics of Georgia as they have changed, that fairly represent that Georgia right now is a purple state. 
um, we are purple there, and, and our maps really should reflect that. So legality, you know, or not, we, time will tell. Courts will decide whether or not these maps are legal, but I think we can pretty straightforwardly talk about what's right, what's morally right, and these maps are not morally right. Uh, you know what, Tamar, before we get a break, one very quick point, and I'd love to hear you respond. Um, we have always said on this show, when we talk about Republican gerrymandering today, oh, yes, but when Democrats were in charge, they did the same thing. And that's true. Um, mm-hmm. In Illinois right now, it's Democrats who are drawing uh, strange maps. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. at a certain point, you kind of have to draw the line, speaking of drawing lines, and say, mm-hmm. I don't care if it's Democrats or Republicans, this kind of gerrymandering does not do voters of any state any good whatsoever. Yes, but at the same time, you know, what's what's so interesting is the Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that that federal courts kind of, for the most part, wanted to stay out of this. Of course, there can be lawsuits against racial gerrymandering under the Voter, Voting Rights Act, but the Supreme Court kind of said, this is a political process and we're going to let this play out. Absolutely. All right, let's take our final break. Uh, my list is still long. I'll do my best to get to at least some of it after these messages. Tamara Hellerman, you worked some sources and were able to report this. I'm going to read you the first two graphs of your story. A Fulton County, oh, I'm sorry, Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis is likely to impanel a special grand jury to support her probe of former President Donald Trump, a move that could aid prosecutors in what's expected to be a complicated and drawn-out investigative process. And you go on to say that a person with direct knowledge of the discussions confirmed the development. How soon might we see this happen? And what's the implication of a special grand jury? Sure. We're not crystal clear on the timing yet, but the, you know, my source told me it's pretty imminent and could happen, I mean, within a matter of of weeks or or months um, or even sooner, potentially. Um, What's interesting about a special grand jury, it's a really rarely taken path. locally but what's interesting is that it gives the the DA's office should this this ultimately be approved and and you know superior court judges need to ultimately approve it is it gives prosecutors a grand jury of 16 to 23 people that stays the same throughout the entire investigative process. A typical grand jury gets rotated on for two months at a time. They hear a zillion cases, everything from murders to arsons. And so, you know, this Trump investigation would be one of many cases that they would hear. They could approve subpoenas and then these people would move on with their lives. What a special grand jury would give Fannie Willis's office is that same group of people over and over again, which could be quite helpful um, as they try and argue and kind of unwind this very complex investigation. And it could take a lot of time. And frankly, it could be very difficult for prosecutors should they go that route, because Donald Trump is known uh, in a courtroom to want to stonewall every single request. So a lot of the veteran prosecutors I talked to mentioned that this could be a smart move just because it's going to be so complicated. It could be so dragged out that it helps to not have to explain this case to a brand new set of grand jurors every two months. Yeah, Alan, we know that Fonnie Willis launched her investigation of his of Trump's uh, alleged interference. Well, we've seen, we've heard the phone call to Raffensperger <laughs> um, and, and seen other statements, but she launched it last February. So it's a long drawn out process. She's already gathered some documents, some interviews with key people in this, and now the grand jury would help her move this thing forward. But Alan, here's my question. Um, it's already November. Um, if you're looking at 
February, March, April. Well, you're in the primary election season. You're moving toward the general election. How is this going to be viewed? Uh, Even if it's, I mean, I'm not suggesting it's not legitimate, but is it going to tarnish the uh, what they move forward with in the middle of an election year? Well, I I, I think there's no question that um, if uh, the DA moves forward with this case and and eventually brings an indictment, um, that it's going to be interpreted along partisan lines. I mean, it's just totally predictable that we're going to hear Democrats uh, reacting in one way and Republicans reacting in the opposite way, for the most part. Um, there, there may be some, some uh, few exceptions, but by and large, this is just going to play out. It's going to play out in this extremely polarized environment that we're dealing with right now, in which we've already seen that uh, re- Republicans in Congress, for, for example, for them have, have, with rare exceptions, uh, moved on from January 6th and, and are trying to downplay the significance of that. Are, and, and, and in which we've seen Republican members of the House of Representatives being viciously attacked for voting in favor of a bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, think about that. I mean, this was maybe the least partisan issue you could think of one in which Democrats and Republicans have traditionally worked together because it's bringing benefits directly into the members, states, and districts. And here, uh, the uh, dozen or 13 or so Republicans who voted in favor in the House uh, are, are seeing themselves being attacked by Trump and his allies. So that's certainly going to, going to play. It's going to play out the same way when it comes to any attempt, you know, to indict and prosecute Donald Trump in connection with his very overt interference in, in, in the election here in Georgia. I mean, it's hard to deny that Trump tried to interfere uh, with the election and tried to influence the outcome. Um, but it, I, in the end, it won't matter in terms of the, the kind of the, the way that it's going to play out uh, uh, politically. Kim? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, as I listen to Alan talk about this, I am so aware of the ways in which the Republican Party has lost the moral high grounds. Um, I'm not actually sure they ever had it, but they certainly claimed it for a very long time to have the moral high ground, to, to be the, the party that's protected the soul of America. And what we're seeing because of these partisan politics and partisan games that they're playing, that Republicans have essentially sacrificed morality um, at the altar of partisan politics. And, and that's greatly disturbing. That ultimately impacts our democracy. Um, so it's not, this is not just a sad thing for Republicans. It's a sad thing for us as a, a nation that we don't have people just simply standing up and saying, you know, he clearly did this. There need to be consequences. Um, you know, the infrastructure bill is good for America. Um, we need to do this. And instead, uh, people have just lost themselves um, and this need to be partisan. So, Leo, to go back to the crassly partisan after Kim's uh, statement, which makes so much sense, uh, this could motivate Republican voters to turn out at the polls uh, next year in big way. Yeah, yeah. So it absolutely will motivate. I mean, you know, uh, Fulton County is a boogeyman. Anybody in collusion to work against a Republican candidate or a Republican icon in Donald Trump uh, is in business 
um, to to hurt Donald Trump. And that's going to rally Donald Trump in the same way that Steve Bannon's being arrested um, has rallied people around Steve Bannon. Um, Trump will use this as a rally cry against the evil Fulton County, and people from Arizona will join in. Alan? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Uh, however, I, I would say this. I think that um, just as we saw you know, Trump's presence in the White House served to energize and motivate Democrats as well as Republicans. And to the extent that that Trump is uh, playing a very high, high profile role in the midterm elections coming up next year, uh, you know, be, by supporting Republican challengers in primaries and then campaigning for his chosen candidates. Um, and then, of course, going forward, if Donald Trump, um, you know, survives these legal challenges and ends up as the Republican nominee in 2024, uh, I have no doubt that that his presence uh, and visibility will uh, in- increase the motivation among Democrats as well as Republicans. And I, I think we're heading toward a, a another, you know, uh, a very high turnout midterm election, just as we had in 2018. The outcome may be very different, but I think it will be a very high turnout midterm election. And then 2024 going forward, um, uh, you know, if if we have a, a Trump uh, running as a Republican candidate, uh, I, I think that will motivate voters on both sides. And we'll see a very, very high turnout in the again in the presidential election. Tamara, take all, us down toward the end. Sure. I think these are all considerations that uh, D.A. Willis is is making as she goes through this investigative phase. And I think there's a lot of frustration uh, for, for folks who want to see her take Trump down. You know, why is it taking so long, especially since so much of this played out in public? There's also the logistics of, of what a prosecution of Donald Trump should look like, should she want to go this route. Um, you could see entire blocks of downtown being shut down with Secret Service, with protesters, with mm. counter-protesters. Not only yeah. that, but the taxpayers of Fulton <laughs> County will have to cover some of that, and she's very aware of that. Oh, gosh. Thanks for that <laughs> lovely image to close out today's show. We are out of time. I. Okay, there's a couple issues we did not get to today. Jan Jones, a leader in the state house, Republican, has made it clear that she wants to uh, propose legislation that will allow the state to ban certain what she calls obscene books from our schools. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Another issue we didn't get to today is this effort, and Kim Jackson's on on the side of the, the the building where they're working on it to expand the number of members of the Gwinnett County Commission to probably allow for more Republicans. Uh, to get on that. We'll talk about that tomorrow. So we got a pretty good way down the list, but didn't quite get to everything I'd hope we'd talk about. In any case, Senator Kim Jackson, thank you. Have a good session today. Alan Abramowitz, Leo Smith, great to have you with us. And Tamar Hallerman, always glad when Tuesday comes along and you're here. So that's it for our show today. We'll be back with a lot more tomorrow. Thank you to Jesse Neiswanger, Sam Burmistaz, and Sarah Callis for their work on the show today. I'm Bill Nygut. Until tomorrow, please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.